Hi, I'm Laura Flanders. This week on The Laura Flanders Show, drawing conclusions and deriving lessons from election 2016. Progressive activists from around the country speak out next. Every year in November, the organization Race Forward holds a conference called Facing Race. This year, Facing Race took place in Atlanta just days after the 2016 election. It attracted a record turnout, and no wonder people wanted to connect and talk and figure things out. I had a chance to sit down with some extraordinary thinkers and doers from across these beautiful United States of ours. And you know what I learned listening to them? Things may be tough, especially for progressives. We have serious challenges ahead when it comes to moving our country in a progressive way forward. But there is reason for hope. For one thing, activists on the ground have been fighting struggles like this and facing challenges like the current one for years. And in some states around this country, there were actual wins in the last election season. I had a chance to talk with some of the folks who had news of both the good and the bad. Among them, Issa Pandit from the Center for Advancing Innovative Policy with some good news from Houston and the two co-directors of the Rural Organizing Project in Oregon, a rural organization that has been fighting the rise of the armed right in their midst and in the wake of economic collapse where they live for over a decade. They have a lot to teach. Take a look. These are the people I think should be on TV every day. I captured them on my iPhone. I was so excited. But we're going to be continuing to bring you interviews like this in the weeks and months ahead. Thanks for your support in making this program possible. Uh, I'm Jess Campbell, and I am the co-director of the Rural Organizing Project. I'm Kara Schufeld, and I'm the co-director of the Rural Organizing Project as well. Tell us a little bit about the work that the Rural Organizing Project does. So Rural Organizing Project works with um, folks across rural and small town Oregon on um, issues of what we call human dignity and democracy. So we work with local leaders, leadership in all 36 of Oregon's 36 counties to build locally based human dignity groups that work to advance um, democracy, human dignity, social gender, gender and racial justice. And um, ROP is a small organization with you know, just a couple of staff, and the real leadership for the work is actually folks leading in their own communities, building with their community members and their neighbors to um, advance a variety of issues across the spectrum, but really to ultimately advance the vision of democracy and human dignity in rural and small town Oregon. What were you doing before this year's elections? Yeah, so um, our communities, rural communities in Oregon, and I know it's true nationally, but especially in Oregon, have been really polarized. Um, and in this polarization, we've also seen significant defunding of community infrastructure, and that has looked like the loss of federal, federal timber payments that was actually uh, keeping county infrastructure afloat for over 20 years. And with the loss of that, we now have counties that don't have reliable 911 dispatch, for example. You call 911 and no one answers. And in that vacuum of a lack of sheriff's department and a vacuum of a lack of emergency response to natural disasters, we've seen the militia movement really grow, which is a way of mainstreaming the white nationalism and white nationalist movement we're seeing across the country. 
Um, but it's really meeting people's needs. And it's been a really impactful and effective entry point for rural folks that are very desperate and very insecure economically and physically in these communities. What have you been up against in these last few months? So looking at this election, I think some of the things that we saw being spoken about at a national level and talked about at a national level were also playing out in rural and small town communities. So um, some of the um, divisive rhetoric that comes out of the militia and patriot movement that we're seeing in rural and small town communities, ways that people are pitting neighbor against neighbor and actually talking about who belongs and who doesn't in our communities, what the solutions are for our communities, um, are similar themes that are being talked about at the national level. So in rural and small town Oregon, for example, many people are so familiar with the the, the um, Melier Wildlife Refuge occupation, right? And the conversation that happened around that about what are solutions for rural and small town communities. Well, give it back to the give public land back to the ranchers and the miners and et cetera, and those and get those people back to work. And I think the conversation around um, who is in our community and who belongs was very much a part of what happened there and is also happening nationally. So for example, at the Malia Wildlife Refuge occupation, you know, it was really on burned Paiute land, tri tribal land that happened, the occupation happened. And so for us to actually broaden the conversation and say who are in our communities, who belongs and what are solutions for what our communities really need, as opposed to some of the targeting and scapegoating that happens that we saw at the national level happening in rural and small town communities, particularly through the militia and patriot movement. Talk a little bit more about the patriot movement and that particular occupation. The jury acquitted all those occupiers, right? Yeah. The acquittal of the, the Bundys and the other some of the other occupiers of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge was a devastating message being sent to rural and small town communities, right? It was a message that said, for folks that come in and actually terrorize a community, communities that said, we don't want you here, there were... Um, there were community gatherings, gatherings and burns where literally a thousand people were there, right? Um, who, when, when the question was asked, who wants the Bundys to go home? Almost every single person raised their hand, right? People didn't actually want this to be happening in their community. And um, the threats, the intimidation that were happening, the public workers who had to be moved from home to home every three days because of the threats they're experiencing, the sheriff's wife that had to be moved out of town because of the threats she was experiencing, Folks, um, that, those threats and intimidation, that's a part of the tactics, a part of the violent culture of the militia and patriot movement, to have then have an acquittal of the Bundys and the occupiers that were tried, sent a message that that behavior was okay, right? And sent a message that we're not seeing what's really happening in rural communities when groups that are using um, threats, intimidation, and an approach that is divisive in our communities, the impact that's really having, right? It's saying, it's okay, this is fine. And so rural and small town communities, were, it was not a win for them, as some people might be repeating, some media might repeat the, the Bundy messages. It was actually a stamp of approval for it's okay to behave like this. It's okay to drive these divisions, to come into communities, to terrorize them, to drive them apart. And that was a dev devastating experience for folks in rural and small town Oregon. I mean, it's... It's absolutely connected the acquittal and Trump's victory. And what we're seeing in terms of the fallout right now, you know, while I'm here at this conference, I have spent hours and hours and hours on the phone with rural Oregonians who are trying to figure out how to keep their neighbors safe because people of color and queers, including white queers, are being targeted by vigilante violence. 
And as Kara just described, you know, this is a tactic in the militia and patriot movement playbook. And, you know, folks have been given permission to do this without any kind of repercussions. And we're seeing it like literally hundreds of rural Oregonians have had their property vandalized, have been assaulted, have been threatened, have had nasty things happen to them. It's happening in cities. It's happening on college campuses. It's happening in middle schools. It's happening in elementary schools. It's, uh, it's terrifying. And it, it, for a lot of folks, it feels like it's open season. And that's definitely how the folks of Burns and in Harney County felt during the occupation. And right now it's all of rural Oregon. And I suspect the entire state, particularly marginalized communities, feels like it's open season and that they have a target on their backs. You're listening to Jess Campbell and Kara Schufelt, co-directors of the Rural Organizing Project in Oregon. I mean, we're in a place right now where we are trying to figure out how to keep each other safe. That's our biggest organizing challenge right now, and it's going to continue through the next four years. You know, how are we going to make sure that people can live their lives fully with safety and dignity is our bottom line. And that looks like, you know, for folks that are being targeted by the militia and patriot movement, we've been setting up homestays and phone trees and figuring out infrastructure to keep people safe and to keep people networked and communicating well so folks know that they can respond and folks know that their neighbors are coming if they need them. And we're just going to need to make that infrastructure even more robust and more expansive and county by county and statewide, not just like whoever is being the loudest around the anti-militia work right now, which is, you know, it's actually terrifying. We're a very small organization and I'm answering calls from Portland because it doesn't seem like there's Portland infrastructure to handle some of this. So we have a huge challenge in front of us and nationally it's a conversation. You know, there were 250 people that came out to a strategy session last night where community self-defense, the community defense more generally was really discussed about how are we going to make sure that our you know, immigrant friends and neighbors are not gonna be targeted and also not deported, yeah. particularly those that signed up for DAPA and DACA that have their addresses registered with the federal government now. Like we have to take a stand and say, no, we're not gonna let our communities be divided by vigilante or increasing state violence. The Rural Organizing Project recently released a report that talked about creative ways to push back Tell us a bit about that. Sure. So Up in Arms, A Guide to Oregon's Patriot Movement, it um, covers both the a lot of research and information about who are the members of the Patriot Movement and the militia movement, what are their roles, what are they doing, what are their strategies and tactics, what are they fighting for. Um, but it also holds up the stories of five counties in rural and small town Oregon who are responding to the um, militia and Patriot Movement in their communities. And one of the first stories that's held up is in Josephine County, which is in Southern Oregon, a county that has um, lost libraries, that's lost 24-hour 911 service, that's lost local law enforcement. And there was an attempted standoff um, with the federal government in April 2015, so almost a year before the Bundy standoff, the occupation of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. And one of the really big lessons that came out of Josephine County and then out of Harney County where the Bundys were and then out of Grant County, which is a neighboring county where there's a constitutional sheriff who is kind of the golden boy of the Sheriff's Association for um, the militia and patriot movement 
is that when community members come together, when they actually speak out and speak against the militia and patriot movement, who claims to speak for the local communities, who say, these are the people here, they need us, they want us. Do you hear anyone speaking out against us? No, they want us here. But then when local people come together and actually speak out against it and put out a different vision and values, and a vision as basic as the people who are affected should be making the decisions. We actually need to be in conversation with each other, talking about what our needs and solutions are, not the person with you know, the most guns making the decisions or claiming they have the best solution and silencing everybody else. But when the community members actually speak out, that takes some of the wind out of the sails, right? There actually is another story coming out of the community of what's really needed. And, the, and that is one of the big things that actually pushes back and um, helps de-escalate the situation as well as challenge that narrative coming out that, oh, we speak for the community. This is what the community needs. And we've seen multiple times either militia and patriot movement back down and step back from what they were claiming to, and trying to do um, or leave town, as in the case of Harney County. Finally, the last you know, um, many of the last several hundred militia and patriot members left town when 350 people in Harney County came out and said, no, no, go home. You don't speak for us. Do you speak Paiute? No, you don't. Get out of here. Um, but that when people actually speak out and offer a different vision forward, it makes it harder for that movement to gain traction and actually sometimes results in them leaving or most of them leaving. Is there any way in which this election, for all of the awfulness of the results, leaves you feeling at least less alone in your grappling with all this? Yeah, I mean, the, the results of this election definitely have people across the country talking about what are we going to do to keep each other safe which is something we've had to grapple with for a year and a half now. You know, ROP has been targeted. I've had the lug nuts loosened on my car. It was stocked pretty relentlessly for a year and a half. Um, we've had to really like come up with plans about what do you do when you can't call the police because they're a sheriff that has deputized 60 plus people and we have no idea how they're going to respond. You know, yeah. so there's some layer there of we definitely feel like we're not just at square one of that conversation. Um, but it's definitely one of those questions, you know, like Trump's campaign sent a representative out to the Malheur refuge during the occupation. And people know that. And so people are seeing how, you know, Donald Trump and his agenda is definitely tied to this movement. And so we're really uh, grateful that we were able to have the resources to put together this toolkit. So it's, it's one way that we can kind of capture best practices and lessons learned and our mapping and analysis of what they're doing and their, uh, their movement building, because it very much is a populist movement that they are building. Um, it's, it's one way of, you know, analyzing one part of the right that is going to just get a shot in the arm from this win. I had a chance to talk with Jess Campbell and Kara Schufelt from the Rural Organizing Project in Oregon. You're listening to The Laura Flanders Show. So a constitutional sheriff is a sheriff that has a very... Uh, narrow understanding and interpretation of the Constitution. It's kind of like how people have different interpretations of the Bible. Some are more conservative than others. And uh, constitutional sheriffs have this understanding that the Constitution means that the sheriff is often the, the highest law of the land, which is a posse comitatus idea. And posse comitatus, of course, saw its rise to power because 
It was one way of undermining civil rights acts um, by saying that sheriffs don't actually have to honor any kind of federal laws, for example. And so constitutional sheriffs get through their very narrow interpretation of the Constitution to judge what is constitutional and what isn't, which means that they feel like they have the ability to make decisions about what laws are enforced and which ones aren't which of course is very dangerous and incredibly scary for communities who are living there. And uh, you know, there's a lot of pretty famous constitutional sheriffs like Joe Arpaio, mm -hmm. which thankfully he was just finally defeated. Um, and Glenn Palmer in Grant County, Oregon is an award-winning constitutional sheriff. He is a nationally recognized constitutional sheriff. And in fact, when the Bundys and Lavoie Finicum, the Bundys were arrested and Lavoie was shot and killed, they were on their way to Grant County to a meeting that was a public meeting to set up a similar structure to what they had in Harney County. And the sheriff was going to be there and attend that. So just to, you know, it, 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 he's very, very integrated in this constitutional sheriff's and Peace Officers Association is very much a, a leader, a leading organization within the movement. Is there anything people out there can do to help you? Um, well, you can get a toolkit if you're interested in learning more about the movement, because I think it's more than just about in Oregon, right? We're seeing this happening in other places as well and popping up in other places. I think the other piece is really around, um, you know, there's a lot of us are having a lot of conversations right now. And what is rural, you know, I think supporting and um, backing rural organizing, right, and engaging in rural communities right now. There's a lot of our people in rural and small town communities, right, who actually need support in this moment because there is a lack of infrastructure. There is a lack of support. There's a lack of domestic violence resources. And so um, being able to really support and advocate for the resourcing of rural and small town communities in this moment and, um, and also organizing in rural and small town communities, I think, is a really big piece of it. What I would add to that is we have also seen in the state of Oregon that our political leadership, despite being a Democratic majority, have completely abandoned rural Oregon. And it's to the point where, as I mentioned before, we don't have 911 dispatchers that are there 24 hours a day in certain counties, and no one at the state level is tracking that. Mm -hmm. And that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable for any state. So I think that there's something that we really need to do in this moment to really call attention to failed political leadership that might agree with us on the values, but the implementation in rural communities hasn't been there. You're listening to the Laura Flanders Show podcast. Want to receive our podcast every week? Sign up at iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can get more information at lauraflanders.com. I'm Isha Pandit. I work for the Center for Advancing Innovative Policy, um, and I'm an activist and do reproductive justice and anti-violence work in Houston, Texas. What was your work before the election? Um, I was mobilizing communities of color in Houston and in the South broadly, but um, specifically forming intersectional multiracial coalitions um, for policy. My longest advocacy experience has been in uh, the reproductive justice movement, and Texas has really been a site of um, some of the biggest struggles, some of the biggest losses, some victories, um, and I think actually the lessons from Texas going forward now will be particularly important. How so? What happened in Texas? Well, we... Um, 
we had actually a really significant set of victories in Harris County. Texas Harris County is the county where Houston is. And uh, Harris County's population is larger than the population of 25 states. And it went sort of undeniably blue this season, which is uh, was surprising to many, uh, but not all. Uh, every single countywide seat was won by a Democrat, as well as the sheriff's elect race and the district attorney's race. And a House seat in Pasadena was flipped from Republican to Democrat for the first time. How would you explain that? Um, there's a few really important ways to explain it. One is increased voter education and turnout. It was the highest turnout as well. So the highest turnout, uh, much, much higher than 28 and 20, uh, 2012. And, uh, and, and so I think the more people turn out in Texas, Texas, Houston, Harris County is the most diverse. Houston is the most diverse city in the country, and people don't know that it, because it's in Texas. So it gets painted with the broad brush of red Texas, but it's not. Um, and the other thing that happened was this election season, prior to this, uh, this election, we had been working for the past few years on a few really particularly intersectional uh, movements in Houston. One was the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, which of course we were not successful at uh, passing. But in the wake of that, a group of communities came together, particularly communities of color, to figure out how to mobilize uh, in each other's communities. And um, so this was a group of undocumented youth uh, through United We Dream, the Houston B uh, Black Lives Matter chapter, and Truth to Power. These are all communities of color grassroots mobilizing efforts that went to the, the parts of the county that are otherwise neglected. So the United We Dream canvassers spent, knocked on 10,000 doors in the east end of Houston, which is a Latino neighborhood, which is often neglected by other progressive get-out-the-vote communities. And the same for the Black Lives Matter groups. They were organizing in um, South Lawn and in the communities of color that um, are considered non-voting areas, even by our progressive coalitions. And so we've been educating them and doing a lot of the work in Houston to get you know, those voters specifically targeted um, and educated about the election. And they turned out more than ever before. So do you have any lessons for the big wise men at the head of our mobilization organizations and political parties? Well, I think um, one of the most important lessons is, is that actually the way to organize communities of color is to find the leaders in those spaces and engage them, not just on the get out the vote, the sort of pound the pavement work, but on the messages. The messages that will resonate in those communities come from within those communities. We had a bunch of um, uh, young leaders who are themselves targets of police violence and it, unjust detention and deportation who were formulating the messages that we use to educate the communities that they live in. And so that really, I mean, grassroots, the definition of, the word grassroots gets tossed around a lot. Um, but I think what it really means is that the, the folks from the communities that are most effective are the ones that are not just doing the pound the pavement work, but also the strategizing and message development work in those communities. Not to be a downer, but are some of those activists now in peril after the Trump election? I think so. And it was very difficult for us to fully celebrate those huge victories. Um, on Tuesday night, they were very, very significant, particularly our sheriffs and DA's races. Harris County is the 
deportation capital of the country with more people deported um, than any other place, even more people deported than Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was also ousted after seven or eight elections. Um, and it's not because we hadn't had um, the attention focused on a place like Houston, we didn't know. And so in the room, in the evening, as we were celebrating the victory, we were also very, very scared for what this would mean for particularly undocumented communities and black communities in Houston. So there is a pallor over the victory. It's really hard to hold it as a, as a singular um, success. But if there's any lesson to be taken away from that, it's that the way to win is in these multiracial, multi-issue coalitions. How do we protect those who are most vulnerable? Um, I mean, damned if I know how we protect those people, but, but I think, um, uh, I think the way that when I was trained, um, in, uh, civil disobedience work, I kind of learned the strategy of surrounding the most vulnerable people, physically surrounding them to protect them. And I think we have to do an organizing version of that now is to surround the communities that will be the most vulnerable and to protect them. And for those of us that have citizenship privilege or have other privileges to be the ones that do the surrounding. Thanks for watching, everybody. You can find out more about the organizations we feature on this program at our website. That's lauraflanders.com. And thank you for your support. This sort of programming isn't brought to you by corporations or government grants. It's thanks to contributions from viewers and listeners like you. And if you want to check out our podcast and just listen to us every week, you can do that too at lauraflanders.com. And thanks.